Three, two, one. Hello. Hello. I have, a, I have a fire pit now. We, we used it last night for the first time in our backyard. It was, it's our, our little hole in the ground, our, our tribute to the, the dirt that uh, we are so lovingly taking care of. We get to burn things in it now. Uh, it, that was fun. <laughs> so here we are in this uh, third episode. And one of the things that we were kind of realizing as we were getting ready for this episode, that this one's a little bit different in terms of how we're going to frame it than our first two episodes. Um, if there was a way that for you to categorize the theme of, of this thread of work, what would be the, the way you'd categorize that theme? So uh, here in New Brunswick, we work closely with uh, two really strong organizations. One focuses on community development. One focuses on uh, economic development and the idea that food changes lives. Uh, New Brunswick Tomorrow and Elijah's Promise. And uh, the project we produce together is called the Mercado Esperanza, which is a monthly plaza event here in the city that focuses on food entrepreneurship and cultural and creative engagement for the community. Uh, but what we've all really... Uh, committed to is really focusing on serving as an advisory committee of organizations. We're we're making the power and the resources available, but we really want to put the community forward in running that project. And that's been going on for about four years now. And so this idea of community empowerment as a way to focus uh, the story of this episode emerged really after a lot of struggle about how do we focus in on all of the development work that's happening here in New Brunswick. And we want, we, we want to sort of look at how community members are now taking responsibility for making sure that uh, there is no one left behind uh, d- during this uh, during the pandemic. Cool. So let's get into it. Chapter one. The origin story. How did we get into this thread of work? Like, what was the first? What was the first thing that happened? Uh, to create a new project that puts the community first, uh, in terms of developing local wealth, uh, and through those relationships, we ended up thinking pretty broadly about how to engage this large uh, ecosystem of advocacy. Uh, and between Elijah's Promise and Collab Arts, uh, we were joined then by uh, New Brunswick Tomorrow, whose project, the Esperanza Neighborhood Project, focuses on a specific community within New Brunswick that has largely been without services. Uh, 
pretty much majority uh, Latino, Spanish-speaking immigrant community uh, that uh, was looking for a new, uh, co- a new a new point of cohesion uh, to to sort of bring the community together uh, in a festival and um, entrepreneurship setting. I was just going to say, you know, the way bigger projects really kind of kick off, especially in community development work, you know, there are there are smaller projects or you kind of slowly over time develop a working relationship. You help each other kind of build a proof of concept, right? So you're, you're kind of working with other partners on smaller projects. Um, and then you start realizing that there's a lot of benefit or value or or just energy in developing certain kinds of relationships. So I think that's that was very much true in terms of how we were working with Elijah's Promise uh, on a few things and then also in New Br- with New Brunswick Tomorrow on a few things. So then when this opportunity came around for these three organizations to work together, um, we all had a kind of a, a mutual understanding that there was going to be some benefit um, for the three organizations to work together and that we all had very similar values and that we all had a very similar interest in really making something uh, long term um, that could be that could be a benefit. Here, there was a really clear intention to focus on creating uh, capacity through collaboration, not necessarily uh, developing a new focused nonprofit, but looking at the strengths and resources of active organizations already working in the city uh, and, and creating something new that institutionally uh, they would be held responsible to facilitate, nurture, and then ultimately potentially let go if the, if the, uh, if the leadership strength was there in the community. So I think that's a good segue into chapter two, the advocates. So, We've mentioned these other expert organizations, right? And the advocates, um, you know, when we talk about that, they're really these expert uh, uh, organizations or individuals that we really kind of lean on for the the partner work um, that we do uh, on on all of our different kinds of projects. So um, I feel like we should we should give a little bit more background or detail into the kind of like the two very specific partner organizations that we worked with on this project. Um, so uh, the first partner we'll talk about is Elijah's Promise. Uh, their tagline is Food Changes Lives. Um, and they've been uh, in New Brunswick for decades, uh, starting primarily as a, a soup kitchen and services for the city's homeless. It's really evolved in terms of becoming this full wraparound service organization to bring people out of poverty and into employment. Uh, and so what they have is uh, still the, the really robust uh, food kitchen where dignity is placed first, uh, and then they have a, a culinary institute. So individuals who receive services can then matriculate into uh, this training uh, this training school for, for uh for chefs to then actually get uh, job placement uh, and employment following their graduation. It, it really is a beautiful uh, transition uh, that really has been successful at leading people out of poverty. But to get a bit more specificity on, on that evolution and the work that's happening, uh, I got a chance to speak with Anthony Capisi, Associate Director. Really for us, our, our agency trajectory is moving from a place of charity to one of solidarity. And what I mean by that is, uh, we are moving to a place beyond just 
serving meals for folks, um, providing social services, which, you know, that, that is never going to go away um, until we have like a radical shift in you know, our economy and just how, um, you know, uh, income is distributed. But uh, what we've been doing, you know, over the last 20 plus years is building in these other opportunities um, like our workforce training program at Promise Culinary School and our social enterprises, um, you know, the point of which to, you know, create these good paying $15 an hour plus jobs um, for emerging chefs and pastry chefs in the culinary industry. Um, that's been our, you know, strongest tie-in to the Mercado Esperanza project. And, you know, as you know, our role uh, or one of our primary roles is to operate our commercial kitchen space, you know, allowing these small-scale food vendors and businesses to make their food product in a space that's licensed, regulated, insured, etc., um, so that they have no legal obstacles to selling their product and making a profit. The other organization is New Brunswick Tomorrow. Now, the thing I'll say about New Brunswick Tomorrow, Dan, is like, so I was born and raised in the city of New Brunswick. And New Brunswick Tomorrow has kind of like this very storied history with New Brunswick um, and really uh, uh, revolving around the, the, the rebirth or revitalization of New Brunswick from the, the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and they were always focused on, on programming. What are the supportive services or programs that need to be created in order to get communities mobilized? What are the ways their work evolved to meet the needs of, you know, of the city of New Brunswick was understanding who the, who the waves of immigrant populations were in the city of New Brunswick. And they were looking at the, um, what you might call the French street corridor, um, along route 27, um, uh, just south of the downtown area, uh, in New Brunswick. And they were looking at that neighborhood and, and really seeing a very specific kind of immigrant, uh, new wave of immigrant population moving in. Um, New Brunswick is predominantly Latinx. Of that group, um, the largest is uh, Mexican, uh, uh, Mexican immigrant. And then kind of the, like the largest um, set within the uh, Mexican immigrant population is actually from Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, so New Brunswick tomorrow is looking at the, these kinds of specific communities and saying, okay, what, what are the barriers to access that these communities are facing? And what are the immediate needs to make a healthy and sustainable city? How do you improve that quality of life for New Brunswick residents? Um, and it's really interesting kind of like growing up that, 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 the title or the the name New Brunswick Tomorrow has always kind of been in the background uh, uh, of my life for a long time, and then to to be able to work with them at this point um, has been has been really great um, because now I get to help develop a process that you know I kind of benefited from as a young person uh, in the city of New Brunswick, and now I kind of get to be back involved uh, in making making programs uh, a reality for the next generation of New Brunswick residents. For New Brunswick Tomorrow, the housing piece has become really prevalent, and that's sort of the new thread that Colab Arts is partnering on, uh, partner, partnering with New Brunswick Tomorrow in elucidating some of those stories and experiences. But to uh, speak a bit more um, articulately about uh, the work of the Esperanza Neighborhood Project. I spoke with that program's director, Charles Bergman. You know, the housing situation was already so precarious for, for many folks in New Brunswick, paying too much for um, apartments and, and houses not in great condition, often with landlords who aren't attentive enough um, at, at best uh, or, you know, abusive at worst. Uh, and of course, they're 
are some good landlords too, but not enough of them. Um, so now, of course, um, how is uh, how is an immigrant family or any family for that matter supposed to negotiate? You know, telling their landlord that they can only pay part of the rent or can't pay the rent. Um, uh, so that, of course, you know that that critical need has been um, kicked. That can has been kicked down the road a little bit because of the eviction moratorium and some other protections. But you know, you talk with folks and talk with families about well, what's going to happen when that moratorium is lifted um, on evictions? Maybe people will be back working, but they're going to owe potentially one, two, three months rent, right? Um, so, um, and is there enough rental assistance? Is there enough uh, legal representation to go around? Um, at this point, there's not, but hopefully those stopgap measures give, uh, you know, government um, and local institutions uh, buy us more time to help figure out how to meet the meet the need. Um, what's really compelling and powerful about this work is here we would typically do a delineation uh, in our chapters between the advocates and the community, uh, but because of our, our episode's theme, Community Empowerment, that line is starting to blur more and more. And so the individuals who have been hired to coordinate the Mercado uh, Esperanza both find themselves uh, joining this leadership team from within the community. And so uh, for the next couple of interviews, we really wanted to pass it off to them to sort of take us through what this work means directly to uh, the Esperanza neighborhood. All right. That sounds like a good plan. So in order to do that, why don't we go ahead and segue ourselves into chapter three, the community stories. One of the first people from the Esperanza Neighborhood Project that I really remember as, as kind of reflecting that passion was Carolina Marotti. And she's always that, that voice at the meeting that's really willing to both um, speak up and speak out. And she's also that person that makes sure that other people know what's happening. She's been a, tr been a translator, both literally and metaphorically. You'll be that person at the meetings that will make sure that um, there's no English-Spanish um, barrier um, that we can't overcome. But then she's also a translator in terms of how to get the artists who are coming into these spaces, how to get them um, the information they need, and how to build the relationships they might need um, and how to build trust over time. And she's really, she's really been uh, an, an incredible teacher for us um, on how to, how to gain trust and how to feel welcomed into those neighborhood coalitions. Who is Esperanza in the community? Esperanza in the community is, and pretty much people see it as an organization, um, but most of it is an I see as an as an opportunity to grow, as an opportunity to give the community um, the chance to become entrepreneurs, the chance to start believing on themselves, also the chance to know and to realize that it's possible to start a little business, it's possible to start selling something, it is possible to show the kids that you can make it happen. So to me, um, Esperanza is like. The Esperanza community or the way the Esperanza community is being seen by the community is spectacular because 
it is a big, big opportunity for the community. To the, the, we give it the opportunity to people to leave a legacy to their kids. I always love listening to Carolina talk about the work that she gets to be a part of. She talks about it with such humility and such joy. Um, she is what I would call a happy warrior in terms of just going feet first into this work. Uh, and when we question the impact or the value of the work that we're doing on the community, um, which happens regularly just because we're always in process in terms of reflecting, innovating, rebuilding the way we tell our stories. Uh, I, I can always count on Carolina to actually offer a very strong uh, and uh, introspective response uh, to understanding how the value of art has directly impacted her life and that of her family. So the other person uh, I think that's really important to hear from is Diana Diaz-Tapia, who is the Program Associate for Neighborhood Development at New Brunswick Tomorrow. So Diana, she is um, a New Brunswick community member who has been brought in as a staff member of New Brunswick Tomorrow. And she has approached the work very much as someone who started on the outside uh, in terms of doesn't necessarily know how the sausage was made in the beginning. Uh, and is purely responding to the work of the Mercado as a project, uh, what it needs to do, what it's able to do, and who it serves. And so listening to her speak uh, about that work and kind of distilled to the way the community um, directly experiences uh, experience it as a project. The Mercado Esperanza is a monthly uh, community market that celebrates the food, the arts, and culture of New Brunswick uh, and its uh, diverse Latino community. We are looking for ways to support our members from the Mercado Esperanza. Uh, we understand that some of them might be going through, you know, I mean, we are going through hard times, but some of them may be uh, having issues with some of the topics that I mentioned, either financially, unemployment, food assistance. So we would like to have create an opportunity for to vendors to be involved um, in a meal distribution where they can get the opportunity to uh, have some financial assistance. While our vendors will be getting a benefit from this, we will be helping the community at large getting uh, meals. So right now it has become more of our, how do we respond to the issues that are happening to to the community, but also specifically to our members? They play a major part in our in our monthly community markets. It might be hard to kind of bringing a whole mercado, uh, virtual mercado online to continue to share and celebrate uh, what we usually do at the mercado: the the arts, the presentations, the theater. Uh, we understand that that's also an important piece of the Mercado Esperanza, and we would still like to keep that and share that with, with the community, especially right now. So that's why we have been uh, discussing about creating a virtual Mercado, um, kind of give them give them a hope, make them smiles, bring some entertainment uh, to help them and help also our vendors kind of distract themselves from all of this uh the current situation with the, the pandemic. Everyone um, from business, from nonprofits, from government, this is taking a toll on folks way beyond capacity and way beyond anyone expected needing to be called into service. 
uh, I mean, we have the podcast. That's a pale um, reflection of some of the uh, tireless work that these guys are doing right now. And I just wanted to give some space to Anthony and Charles just to speak to um, the uniqueness of this experience. And essentially, they're relearning all over again uh, what it means to be vulnerable uh, and highlighting the cracks that are really present in our system and are trying to respond to filling them as quickly and as uh, powerfully as possible. Anthony shares a little bit about um, the incredible lift that Elijah's Promise has had to make in terms of meeting the demand. It, it is a, uh, a scarier moment than I think they probably ever could have conceived before living through it. We've now gotten to a place where we are serving over 700 meals a day at our community kitchen. Um, on a busy day in normal circumstances, um, that meal count is closer to like 300 to 350. Um, we're continuing to see a pretty steady increase of an, uh, we estimate additional like 50 to 75 additional guests coming in through our doors every single week. Um, and, you know, as, as we were talking about before, like, you know, there are some major institutions in New Brunswick, uh, Rutgers University. Johnson & Johnson, Bristol-Myers Squibb has a headquarters here. Um, obviously, we have a robust restaurant um, industry and a couple corridors that, you know, these in, uh, the industry kind of like has matched itself to. All of these uh, institutions are on an altered schedule, and a lot of those hourly employees just don't have a job right now. Um, and all of that combined together is what we're seeing in terms of the increased meal count um, at our community kitchen. And I think it also points to uh, just a lack of other resources available in these kind of situations. Uh, Charles talks uh, a lot about um, mobilization of their organization and trying to just make food as accessible uh, and available as possible um, for folks who are um, homebound, who are otherwise challenged to make it to other food pantries, and just making sure that no one gets left behind from the other services that are already being provided. You know, our elected officials at, at all levels, right, from local to state to national, they need to hear really about the depths of this crisis, especially for, for low-income and uh, immigrant families. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to be fighting harder, honestly, to, um, to make sure that those families' uh, needs are met. So a couple particular um, things that I'd want to highlight, for example, is there are efforts uh, at the state level, for example, um, to uh, go further in terms of protections for for renters or even small home, uh, you know, small moderate income, low and moderate income homeowners, for example, to formalize the suspension possibility of suspending rent or mortgage payment for folks who are economically impacted by the crisis, or even in more radical proposals, uh, canceling rent or mortgage payments, right? So, um, but uh, needs to go a little further than the protections put in place so far. I think right? it's probably a pretty good um, uh, time for us to transition into like then what has been created. So uh, let's move into chapter four, the art. 
So I will have to say we could probably talk for another hour and a half about all of the different arts programs and cultural projects that have been part of the overall, you know, uh, community organizing process we've done with the Esperanza Neighborhood Project. But if you were to say, like, if you were kind of like pinpoint some very specific examples, what what would be like your favorite example or the best example you think uh, of our art arts response would be to this to this work? I mean, I'm slightly biased. There's there's a project that we've been trying to develop for the last decade, uh, and it's now called the um, Teatro Esperanza, and it's it's essentially the first Spanish language theater company in New Brunswick still very much in its infancy, still very much treating, uh, teaching the community in terms of scaffolding skills, in terms of being able to create as well as understand more uh, sophisticated projects. Uh, but that's being championed by a, a woman named Tanakil Marquez, uh, who came on as a resident artist for CoLab, uh, is now uh, employed by New Brunswick Tomorrow. Uh, and we're really hoping to keep her here to keep facilitating what's become a really uh, uh a really close-knit group of community artists, mothers and families who are looking for really exciting ways to tell their stories, uh, both themselves and with really strong performance artists. Hearing you talk about that, I, you know, I, it makes me think of kind of like some of the 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 building steps that that went into getting us to a point to have a Teatro Esperanza, and one of the things that I think was was really cool was the the integration of all different kinds of artistic responses in order to get at what this what this neighborhood project would be i i think back to those community story slams we would do um linked with the mural unveilings and i and i i just i those were such special events where you had um you know a, a, an artist work with a community uh with the with the community group over a period of several months to really get the story right of what that mural work would be and then simultaneously doing um storytelling workshops and trainings with with community members so that when we went to unveil that mural those community members were the ones standing up to the microphone and then being able to have events in which city leaders and we're talking about you know the 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 power structures of of a city you know being able to have um our mayor and our city council persons come to those events and then sit and listen to the the residents of the Esperanza neighborhood. Those are moments in which um, the art really provides the opportunity for communication. What's really exciting is just to think of what the expansive opportunity is when it's not only us operating in this space creatively, but all of the work that we've done in terms of empowering uh, our colleagues and community members to start developing work on their own. Uh, I mean, the end game here for us does not necessarily, is not necessarily us being the makers. It's knowing that that hard work has led to real sustained uh, joy and uh, a quality of life need and opportunity. And I think that's, it's like that goal. It's like getting to the point in 50 years where you can look back and it's all, it's all happening without you. Right. And, and I would say like, that's something that every, that's like a parent's dream too. You know, it's a, it's like a, it's like the idea of, of being able to see others succeed, um, is a great, 
is a great kind of like end goal. So after all that being said, uh, the reality is we now need to think about the oral histories that we're going to produce. I mean, after listening to Anthony, to Charles, to Diana, to Carolina, are we are we more informed now about what the story will be when we start documenting this community? Uh, I I I think we have a good idea of where to start, and that's always the goal. But you're you're always going to be surprised, and that's what the art is. That's what a creative process is. I hope that expectations evolve and change over time. And I think that's to me is what the oral history process is about. Let's actually go out and dig deeper and find out what are the next series of questions that we should be asking. Um, You know, art isn't about answers. It's about questions. I think that's a nice way to end this episode, Dan, um, because it's, uh, it kind of leads us into, there's a lot of work yet to be done. For those of you who joined us for the last few episodes, thank you so much for writing with us all the way. And uh, I wanted to just point everyone's attention uh, to the New Brunswick Community Response Fund that is being put together by New Brunswick tomorrow. Uh, Please join them in their efforts to support uh, their neighbors affected by the COVID-19 outbreak. Your gift will help lift New Brunswick and its residents. Uh, and you can go uh, make a donation at nbtomorrow.org. That's nbtomorrow.org. All right. With all great projects, there are many, many people to thank. Uh, we'd like to thank our newest patrons contributing to the Colab Arts Patreon. Your monthly membership goes directly to Colab Arts Collaborating Artists and allows us to create and commission new virtual programming that reflect our local creative community and gives you access to group and one-on-one virtual workshops. Great. And check out our website uh, for our regular uh, schedule of programs, which includes Jad Cato uh, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. on Facebook doing a live story creation. Dusty Ballard hosts a guest storyteller every friday night at 7 p.m on instagram and of course you can check out those workshop videos on the collab arts website collab arts is on social media and all locations at c-o-l-a-b-a-r-t-s we want to thank uh, everyone who made this specific episode possible including uh new brunswick tomorrow and elijah's promise charles bergman and anthony capisi we also want to thank Diana Diaz-Tapia and Carolina Marati. Uh, our grant funding for our public art programming has been provided by the Middlesex County Board of Chosen Freeholders through a grant award for Middlesex County Cultural and Arts Trust Fund. Teatro Esperanza has been funded both by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. The Mercado Esperanza is generously funded by the Kresge Foundation. And thanks forever and always go to the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, who supports local journalism, government, transparency initiatives, and creative community outreach efforts to educate and engage the public around issues of importance to New Jersey. All right, I think that's the end. Yeah. Well, only one thing left to say, and that's Dave Seaman. Play us out. Bring it back, 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 bring it back.
We got an episode in there somewhere. <laughs> uh.